Harto Kolopaking was on the flight into Los Angeles airport. He'd flown for 18 hours from Java, Indonesia. Once he got off the plane at LAX, he headed over to a hotel to meet some buyers. Harto had something extremely valuable with him. It wasn't jewels, family heirlooms, money, or drugs. It was flowers. Yeah, you heard that right, flowers. Orchids, to be specific. You see, Hardo was one of the most respected orchid traders in the world. It was in his blood. His dad, Atmo Kolopaking, even had orchids named after him. So here Hardo was in L.A. he just arrived at the hotel, gone past reception, up three flights of stairs, and knocked on the door. He entered the room and was greeted by a group of men in suits. Hardo put his bag on the bed, opened it up. It was full of these orchids, beautiful tropical flowers, like something out of a painting. As they all sat around talking, one of the guys asked Hardo the question that was on everyone's lips. How much? About $13,000, replied Hardo. Wait a minute. Yes, this dude said $13,000 for some flowers. As the words left Hardo's mouth, one guy got up from his seat and stepped forward to reveal his true identity. Ken McLeod, an undercover agent. Little did Hardo know that he had just walked straight into a trap organized by the U.S. government, a trap that had taken over a year to set. So did this guy just get taken down by the feds for selling flowers? I'm Alzo Slade, and from something else, this is Cheat, the show that asks the question, is it ever okay to break the rules? This week, Orchid Fever, an Indonesian flower smuggler and the murky world of conservation. Have you ever been on the way to visit your partner or family and realize you need to pick up some flowers? After the initial panic, you spot a gas station or a corner store selling them for about $5. Boom, you can relax. Crisis averted. But what if the flowers your partner really wanted weren't that easy to get? What if there was a multi-million dollar black market centered around the procurement of that one type of flower? Orchids. You know, the colorful ones with the long stems and only about five to seven petals on their head. Yeah, for some reason, people go crazy over these things. To the point that they'll spend tens of thousands of dollars on one plant. And the more rare, the more exotic, the better. Across cultures and contexts, humans have often had a really tight and important relationship with orchids, often focused around valuing their beauty and their often quite amazing and sometimes quite unusual smells. This is Jacob Phelps from Lancaster University in England. He's a member of the official International Committee for Protecting Orchids. And I had no clue orchids had their own international team for protection. As it turns out, our obsession with orchids has been going on for a long time. 
We know that in China, cymbidium orchids have been valued and, and traded as ornaments and as medicines and also as gifts uh, for centuries. And in Japan, the furan orchids were prized by the samurai for their subtle flowers but tremendous fragrance. And here in the UK, of course, we also have a really long tradition of collecting orchids from all over the world, often in huge numbers, most notably, of course, during the Victorian orchid craze. This Victorian orchid craze even has a name, orchid delirium. Why? Because orchids seem to make some people lose all sense of perspective. In the 19th century, this orchid craze turned into hysteria. Special hunters were employed to track down exotic varieties in the wild and bring them to collectors. These collectors would then display them in their huge, ornate private greenhouses. It was a hobby for the elite. And to be an orchid hunter was to risk your life for these flowers. These hunters regularly got killed by disease, accident, animals, the elements, or even murdered by other hunters in competition. But what if you didn't have the stomach to murder your rivals? Then these hunters would just murder their rivals' flowers by urinating on them. Yes, these folks would just go around pissing on their competitors' flowers. And just so you all know, as I'm telling you this story, if you think all of this is crazy, that makes two of us. Because they're so diverse, they also reflect a huge range of colors and smells and shapes and habitat preferences. Orchids come in all different colors, different shapes, and different sizes. There's something like 30,000 known species of these little plants. There are tiny little orchids that exist only in a specific valley and others that are huge and charismatic and beautiful and fragrant. And this wide range of biodiversity also means that there's a lot of different reasons to be interested in orchids. That's a dream for collectors. One plant, but in millions of different forms. It's like how sneakerheads will collect Jordans, but in every color. As a group of plants, they are distributed almost all over the world. That's Rama, an Indonesian conservationist. He's been involved in the world of orchids since he was a boy. And Rama's not surprised that orchids are a global craze, because these things grow just about anywhere. Almost every single ecosystem, as extreme as uh, oasis in the desert, and then as extreme as the uh, Katrina Island in the south of Australia when there's like continuous frost hitting the island itself and they still bloom in the middle of the frost. But even though there's a whole lot of them, they're still hard to grow. Not only does there need to be specific conditions for an orchid to germinate, but they often take a long time to mature and flower. In fact, some types of orchids can take more than a decade to reach their first bloom. Now, let's go back to that gas station for a moment, where we were looking for the $5 flowers. Those aren't the big money orchids, obviously. Those flowers are what we call propagated orchids. They're kind of like bootleg orchids. They've been artificially grown in huge plant houses. One seed pod from a pollinated plant contains thousands, if not millions of seeds. And once you've got the right setup, they're pretty easy to grow. But for these fanatical collectors, that's too easy. What they want are the special, rare orchids, ones you can only find in the wild. Which brings us back to Hardo Kolopaking, 
because his family back home in Indonesia were experts in wild orchids. They are respective family for sure. That's Rama again. His dad contributed a lot in orchid exploration and taxonomy, even though he's not a botanist himself, but he works a lot with many European botanists, help them to collect the wild specimen and describe new species from all over Indonesia. Taxonomy. It's a fancy word for the name scientists give to a species. And this is how Kolopaking's dad ended up having a species named after him. A few, in fact. It's a way botanists say thank you. The Kolopakings ran a nursery in East Java. Located in the mountains and surrounded by active volcanoes, it was one of the biggest nurseries in Indonesia. Greenhouses filled with tables, lined with orchids of hundreds of different colors and varieties. Species you couldn't even imagine. They sold orchids locally and all over the world. And one of the orchids the Kolopaking family traded captivates both collectors and conservationists. The Lady Slipper Orchid. Yes, go ahead and pause so you can Google. These are species that are all characterized by this pouch, which resembles a lady's shoe, I suppose you could say. This is Jacob again. They're really unusual-looking plants. They might not, to the casual observer, be the most obviously desirable, but it doesn't take long looking at them to realize that they're really genuinely beautiful in an unusual way. Lady slipper orchids have been studied for over 180 years, but there's still new species being discovered. And those new species are typically coming out of very remote areas that have been underexplored by scientists as well as by collectors, and are often only found in very specific regions. This means that they are naturally very isolated and very rare. And like any other rare thing that collectors might take interest in, that rarity tends to promote greater interest. In particular, Indonesia is a hotspot for these lady slippers. Indonesia is an amalgam of many, many thousands of different islands. Including East Java, where the Kolopakings live. And so you have huge amount of diversity, some of which are limited to specific valleys and mountain ranges or even specific islands. So indeed, Indonesia is a really a priority place for lady slipper conservation. So the Kolopakings and their nursery were thriving. They had incredible access to these lady slippers and no shortage of buyers. Every orchid that they were selling could go for 30 to 40 times what they paid for it. That is, until a law is introduced that effectively makes their business model illegal. More after the break. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise. The island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's Pierre Bin Laden. 
you'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios. Wherever you get your podcasts. Even though you can pick up an orchid at the grocery store, they're actually highly regulated plants. You can't just buy and sell them as you like. There's a whole lot of laws around these flowers. In many countries around the world, orchids are legally protected under national legislation. But orchids are also unique because they also receive a certain unique international level of protection. And that's under the International Convention on International Trade of Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora. So this international convention has the initials C-I-T-E-S. We tend to call it the CITES Convention. Okay, that's much better. We can work with that. In 1975, CITES came into force. Its aim is to ensure that international trade in wild animals and plants doesn't threaten the survival of the species. So CITES created this list documenting all the species that need regulations on how they're traded. And orchids make up a huge part of this list. A lot of people will be surprised to learn that more than 70% of the species that are listed on the CITES convention are actually orchids. Within this list, orchids appear in Appendix 2 and Appendix 1. Most of them are in Appendix 2, where legal trade is regulated, but a small number of them are on this Appendix 1, for which all international commercial trade is illegal. Any level of commercial trade in these species is thought to really present a threat to the long-term survival of that species in the wild. Now, this is the case for the orchids we're particularly talking about today, all of those lady slipper groups. Trade in those is some of the most tightly regulated of any plant group in the world. But were the lady slippers always illegal to trade? Well, no. That happened in 1989 when they were moved from Appendix 2 to Appendix 1. After 1989, any type of wild lady slipper trading was now completely illegal. Nurseries that had been filled with lady slippers that would be ready for the next year suddenly were obsolete. And we're talking hundreds of flowers, huge plants and numerous species that a year before would have gone for $150 a pop. Big money by Indonesian standards. But all this law change did was force everything underground. Those orchid specialists whose livelihoods depended on trading lady slippers, well, they were faced with a choice. Either stop and risk going out of business or carry on and hope not to get caught. And that was the choice Hardo Kolopaking faced. He had over 500 extremely valuable orchids in his family's nursery, orchids that he now couldn't sell. That's coming up after the break. It's 1993. An inspector from the U.S. Department of Agriculture opened a package sent from Indonesia to a U.S. collector. It was marked sample material. The box contained a cache of 60 lady slipper orchids. The sender's name? Harto Kolopaking. The lady slipper orchids that were now illegal to sell in any form were still being traded internationally by Harto. 
And so began a year-long investigation led by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, a specialist law enforcement agency that busts poachers and smugglers. Part of that team was Special Agent Ken McLeod. When it comes to rooting out smuggling, McLeod was the guy you wanted around. He'd been undercover to bust all sorts, live alligator smugglers, tiger traders, you name it. And for this orchid job, Kim McLeod knew it was about getting in the room with Hardo Cola Packing. He needed to witness the sale of the illegally smuggled orchids. McLeod had to gain the trust of the sellers. He'd have to pose as an obsessive collector. He knew exactly the type. He described them as so fixated, their obsession is, quote, something that almost needs to be treated with a medication. So that was his undercover persona. But first, McLeod and his team had to infiltrate Hardo's operation. And just to be clear here, we're talking about flowers, not guns or drugs, flowers. And this operation stretched the globe from Cola Packing's nursery in East Java to an orchid wholesaler in Florida via a family member living in San Jose. McLeod needed to be seen as an avid collector, and most importantly, a serious buyer. Serious enough to entice Hardo Cola Packing to come to the U.S. Once McLeod had confirmed that Hardo was coming, the sting operation was set up. In September of 1994, Hardo boarded a plane with suitcases filled to the brim with 216 wild lady slipper orchids. But how was he planning to get all that through customs? Turns out, orchid smugglers tucked their contraband in suitcases, unmarked packages, and the secret compartments of shipping containers. They also take advantage of the fact that most people, like customs inspectors, don't know different plant species. So smugglers just declare a different one on import and export permits. Now, Hardo arrives in L.A. and goes to meet McLeod at the hotel. After Hardo reveals his price, McLeod arrests him for smuggling endangered species into the U.S. and confiscates the plants estimated to be worth as much as $150,000. In November of 1995, Hardo pleaded guilty to smuggling 1,346 tropical lady slipper orchids over a two-year period. The judge gave him five months. He was the first orchid smuggler ever to be given jail time in the U.S. Now, imagine that. You're locked up in the joint, and the folks are asking you, Hey, man, what are you in for? Ah, yeah, you know, I was, I'm a smuggler. What'd you smuggle? Uh, flowers? Yeah, it's not going to go over well. And as it turns out, a lot of folks had mixed reactions to Hardo's sentencing. I think a lot of people saw it as, you know, over the top or, hey, these plants should be grown in greenhouses and we should have a right to own them. And Indonesia is destroying its forest anyway, so what does it matter if we take them illegally? And the reality is that that is, you know, that's just an attempt at self-justification. Hardo is just one guy in an industry that's still pretty packed with trading illegal plants. He just got caught. In fact, Hardo's lawyer said he'd been the victim of international politics, and due to his father's fame, it made him a convenient target. <laughs> 
In other words, why pick on Hardo? There are loads of people doing this stuff. And what about the collectors? Two of the people Hardo sold to weren't even prosecuted. We know of numerous orchid trading companies internationally as well as in the U.S. that are buying, receiving, and trading wild protected plants. They have all of their paperwork in order, but it's an open secret that the plants that they're trading are taken from the wild. The documents are either forged or full of misidentifications. And this continues to be a problem in a great many countries, unfortunately. Rama also thinks Hardo was maybe singled out. I think what happened with him was basically a reckless act and just a mistake. I mean, things happened to him and could have happened also to many other people. His case is also represented by many other botanists in Europe, many other traders. If we follow what it's written in CITES, then all of us are smugglers. Rules is a rule. I'm not supporting what he did, uh, but I'm also not against. If Hardo's case was supposed to set an example, or at least send a message to other smugglers, that didn't work too well either. In terms of it actually spiking increased enforcement for orchid trade, unfortunately, I don't think that it was the antecedent to, you know, getting really serious about protecting orchids. What this case did do is expose the difficulties of trying to regulate or control the illegal flower trade. Because what happens when you make it illegal to sell something a lot of people crave? A lot of them will just start buying from criminals rather than go without. So instead of going to the garden center, you'll find a dealer. Here's the thing about this particular issue. It seems to me like everyone here is basically on the same side. For the most part, conservationists and collectors alike don't want these plants to become extinct. And while collectors are often going to illicit means to acquire these wild plants, some argue that those efforts help preservation too. If there were not trading of whatever endangered species of orchids, there are high likelihood that some of the species could be extinct. Keeping the endangered orchid species as a personal collection could be also part of the conservation itself. But as Jacob says, poaching is poaching. These are people who are passionate about orchids the way, the way I am but regrettably have often overlooked that we need to be enjoying orchids in ways that also help to protect them. And that almost by definition precludes illegal harvest and trade of really critically endangered species. It's almost like it's not enough for these fanatical collectors just to know lots of wild species exist. It's this urge they've got to own wild orchids that's causing all this trouble. I suppose we can all sort of identify with that. It's not enough for me to know that there are shops selling sneakers. I actually want to own a pair. But when it comes to wild orchids, it's a bit different. They're not manufactured. They're a product of nature. And the more that they're taking from their natural setting, the greater the danger the species might die out. The collectors and the conservationists both want to see as many wild species as possible. So maybe the solution here is to try and work together. Right now we have, for example, a project that is working to engage with people who love and collect and have orchids as their hobby, trying to engage them much more in conservation. That includes establishing, for example, with them a code of conduct where they commit to not 
show and exhibit and award wild collected protected plants, that they make sure that their plants are coming from legal sources. It raises sort of an interesting question. When, if ever, is it appropriate to partner with the people breaking the rules? In some cases where people might actually own critically endangered species, perhaps illegally, working with them to say, you own plants that are important for the long-term conservation of this species. We need to make sure that those collections, however they came into your possession, are protected in the long term and are retained for scientific value and possibly in some contexts, perhaps passed on to botanic gardens to help ensure that they're kept in perpetuity and perhaps also in the future for reintroduction. I mean, at the end of the day, what's the goal here? To preserve these beautiful plants so they don't go extinct, right? Hey folks, thanks for listening. Just a reminder to follow Cheat wherever you get it. And please do leave a rating and a review if you like what we're doing. It helps other people discover the show. And of course, we want more listeners. Also, if you want to listen to the show without the ads, you can subscribe to Cheat Plus. It's like Cheat, but better. It's just $2.99 a month, or if you're in the UK, £2.49. And you get all of this without having to listen to those annoying commercials. Just go to Apple Podcasts and hit subscribe instead of follow. You can try it for free now. Next time on Cheat. If my husband was a white man, he would have received his concussion settlement. There's no doubt in my mind. If he was a white man, we would not be having this conversation with you. Lewis would receive his benefits. Cheat is written and presented by me, Alzo Slade. This episode was produced by Harriet Wells. The executive producers are Lizzie Jacobs and Tom Koenig. The series editor is Ennis Bowen. The original idea for this show was developed by Tom Fuller. Engineering, sound design, and scoring by Martin Peralta at Output Media. Our design and visual team is Emma Lansdowne and Sarah De La Rue. Our production coordinators are Jennifer Mystery and Iker Egbatola. <laughs>